when they make the documentary on about James Wiseman, will they call it the last jam? Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm James Wiseman and with me is Ryan Young. So today we're going to talk about mob op rules and Ryan did all of our prep today. He says he has a manifesto. So we'll see what he has to say about that. But first for the banter section. So Ryan, you told me you have an update. What's going on? Yeah. So my thing is, do you ever do something in real, like outside of Frisbee and you're like, this is like learning to delay all over again. So I had one of those moments. Nice. So we've been talking about buying a mountain bike. And before I like make big purchases, I'll set like milestones, the things I need to accomplish before I can spend that money. Okay. And one of them is learning to manual and like a manual on a bike. It's like doing a wheelie, but you don't pedal. So it's much harder. Okay. So you're just balancing on the back wheel with the front wheel up and it's terrifying because like there's this balance point and when you go too far back, you just like fall off the back of the bike and yeah. you just have to survive. But I like will like pop the front wheel up and I'll get to the balance point and I'll just like fall off immediately and then I'll fall off immediately the other way. And I was like, this is exactly the learning experience that a new player has learning to delay. But I'm like doing it for the first time again. But I like it's weird that even though I know how to delay and I've done this process again, I can't do it any faster. I can't learn it any faster. The Are you doing time. this on your road bike? No, I bought a very cheap used BMX bike that's tiny. So that way I can jump off of it a lot easier. If anyone doesn't understand why you're one of the most interesting people I know, just the fact that you with no warning whatsoever, went out and bought a used BMX bike and are basically practicing wheelies is pretty fascinating to me. So did you get it down finally? <laughs> No, it apparently it takes like months to learn. Okay. According to like all the YouTube videos. And you're going to spend because, that time yeah. before you buy your mountain bike? Yep. Because that's it like by itself in a, another thing worth remarking on. Not many people do this, but it seems like a really cool idea to set milestones before you're allowed to buy something, especially something expensive. Yeah, like really slows down the impulse purchase, but you can still be excited because you're making progress every day. This is, what would have been the right milestone for the vacuum that I wanted to buy for three or four years that I finally bought and it was everything I ever hoped for? Like, what's the vacuuming milestone? I think it would be keep your house. Okay, for me, it would be I vacuum with my crappy vacuum on a regular schedule for a set amount of time, like two months every week or something. I use the crappy vacuum to like, all right, I got my, I paid my dues and now I can spend the money to improve my quality of life. Well, there is value in that because you set a benchmark that makes the improved experience that much more valuable to you. So I <laughs> did that inadvertently, which is I kept buying other vacuums and they kept being wildly disappointing. So it was not economically efficient, my process. So now <laughs> every time I use my favorite vacuum, it brings me great joy. Cool. Well, you have to keep us updated on, you said it's called the manual. A manual. Yeah. A manual. That's the article. A I don't think it has an A. I just, yeah, it's a manual. <laughs> a manual. Okay. I'll have to look <laughs> this up later. Cool. So I don't have too much to update on, but we are going to have, I think we just formally have an MBA segment now. But before we get to that, I got back from the jam this last weekend. It was a really good event. Great turnout. And one thing that was pretty fun is Brendan came. And so it was one of only a few events he's ever been to. And it's a rare time he was getting to jam on the beach. And I'd say the wind was pretty high. I think Larry registered it at 
16 miles per hour the two days that we jammed the most. And I think Brendan really held the zone. I think he had a really good touch and he understood how to keep the disc low and he utilized his athleticism very well. So I was kind of surprised to find that among all the people there, he was one of my favorite people to jam with, even though he has lower skills than most of them. Maybe not most of them, but a lot of them because he was handling the wind so well and we could work around anything he couldn't do so well. So that was pretty cool. But one sign of aging was that on the third day or fourth day I was supposed to play, the wind was above 20. And because I felt like I had Brendan and I had my wife there, it was just better to go home early. So we <laughs> we missed the last jam. But whew, it was probably the right call. Because I think if we'd been there, we would have just been like, oh, it's not so fun to just chase the disc on the beach all day. But when you don't know what you miss, you're just thinking, oh, like, what if the jam is really sweet right now? <laughs> you okay. just gave me an idea. Oh, you what's know your when, idea? When they make the documentary on about James Wiseman, will they call it the last jam? <laughs> I don't. That's good. That's a good one. I think the small group of people who are both the NBA fans and the freestyle fans will appreciate that. So moving on then to our NBA segment, which I think is now just a formal formal segment on the podcast. My current favorite player, Nikola Jokic, is in the finals, up three <laughs> games to one, which historically means he's almost guaranteed to win. Teams that are up 3-1 in the finals are 35-1. and one. The only team that ever came <laughs> back from 3-1 was not surprisingly LeBron James in 2016. And here is the... There's two things I want to talk about. So first, Nikola Jokic is what you call a center, which means he's huge. He's almost seven feet tall. He's probably like 300 pounds. And traditionally, centers are kind of big dudes who dunk the ball and stand next to the rim. And it's the kind of smaller guard players who run around and take three-point shots. So if you don't know a lot about the NBA, there's probably two players you've ever heard of, or maybe three, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, and Steph Curry. Steph Curry's famous for being the greatest shooter of all time. He takes incredible threes. He's got a great three-point percentage. That's his whole game. And they talk about how his huge impact is that people are so terrified when he has the ball that he has gravity, and it causes all these distortions <laughs> on the court that make the game a lot easier for his team. Nikola Jokic is so good at basketball that even though he's a seven foot center who's supposed to just stand next to the basket and dunk it, he has the second highest three point percentage in the playoffs above Steph Curry on for players who have above a thousand attempts. So this isn't a small sample size. <laughs> this is thousands of shots in the playoffs. He has the second best of all time. So he's basically shooting above 40% as a seven-footer. And the way I've been explaining to people who don't know basketball, if you do know Steph Curry, it's like if Steph Curry was a foot taller and better at every single part of the game. <laughs> and nobody's <laughs> heard of him. Nobody talks about him. He's this really quiet guy. He doesn't say a lot, but he's been absolutely incredible in the playoffs. And you don't even notice how good he is. You just sort of watch the game and you look up and you're like, oh, wow, he scored 50 points with 20 rebounds and 15 assists. Okay, I guess that's just what he does. So I'm very happy. I think he's going to win his first championship and kind of like in freestyle, getting over that hump makes a, a big a big impact. But my last NBA update, which isn't really an NBA update, which comes back to freestyle, 
is I've been reading books by this uh, data scientist and he has a section about the NBA and he talks about how every inch taller you are is a, it doubles your chance of making the NBA. So the difference between being, and it's pretty even across the height spectrum. So the difference between being 5'11 and six feet, you double your chance of being in the NBA. The difference between 6'9 and 6'10, you double the chance of being in the NBA. <laughs> and one of the things the book talks about is studies they've done to figure out essentially how much of your success into sports is related to your genes versus how much is related to work or circumstances or whatever. And it varies wildly. So some sports, it almost doesn't matter what your genes are. And other sports, including basketball, it matters a ton. So they think it's about 75% of your potential to make the NBA is based on your genes. And one of the ways they do these studies that I find pretty interesting is they basically look at identical twins and fraternal twins and see how they compare in sports endeavors. So if identical twins have a much higher correlation of making it into a major sport, that shows it's much more genetic than fraternal twins. And they kind of just like compare the two in a way that's beyond my, my knowledge. But sports like baseball, mm -hmm. it's like 25% maybe. And basketball, it's 75. So what I was thinking, listening to this podcast, is how much of your freestyle ability is genetically coded. And it was funny that this came up in this book that I've been listening to because I was just at Ultimate and we were measuring our wingspans and I pretty much destroyed everybody in terms of disproportion between arm size and body height. So like my arms are much longer than people that were significantly taller than me, which I'm well aware of because it's impossible for me to buy clothes. Um, <laughs> and me so too. I was thinking about how much of my success in freestyle is just being lucky and having like a certain body type or whatever. At the moment, I think about this a lot because I mean, we're at the opposite ends of the spectrum and I don't think it matters that much. That's I'd say what, that's what I thought, actually. 15%. If you have four limbs, that's probably good enough. Yeah. Like not surprisingly in the book, sports like being an equestrian, like a horseback rider, didn't matter very much what your genes were, which makes sense because so much of what you're doing is about the horse. Or like, I think fencing had a surprisingly low rate. Um, I can't really explain that one. But in freestyle, it seems like there's so many different ways to succeed that your body type doesn't limit you that much. Now, I do think... But I don't think it should be that way. Well... That's just how it is right now. I was going to say, though, that when we say like 75% of being good at basketball is your genes, that doesn't just mean your height. I'm sure that's a big part of it. And it doesn't just mean your physical athleticism, although I'm sure that's part of it too. Now the book couldn't go into this. They don't have, I think, the data to figure this out, but it probably also has to do with the genes that make you hardworking or make you, you know, able to think in terms of teams or whatever. Like I'm sure there's like non-physical mm -hmm. attributes that also fit into that gene category. So I'm talking about body types now for freestyle, but it's not the whole story. But it seems like you can be really successful in freestyle where it is now with different kinds of bodies. But I see your point that you think if our sort of professionalized and there was hundreds of millions of us, it would be all like six, six giants or that are just shredding or something. Yeah. It'd all be just ballet dancers that are also hardworking. Yeah. I mean, it seems like 
the thing about freestyle and it's my just feeling which is probably wrong about which sports jeans mattered more it seems like sports where you can set yourself up and you aren't being defended by somebody else the physical attributes matter less so like in freestyle it doesn't really matter that you're shorter than me because it's cooperative and we just adjust how we set it to you for you able to get it and maybe you have a smaller window but let's say you're i can't do the math in my head but like 15% shorter than me, your window is probably only 8% smaller than mine. I don't know. I'm just making that up. Probably depends on the catch, but you think that sounds right? Yeah. It's not linear. Yeah. It's, it's unintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, it was kind of interesting to think about, but that's always something that I really like about freestyle is that lots of people can be good at it if they want to be. It's not like basketball where it's like, sorry, you weren't six, six. So you're probably not going to be able to be a great basketball player. You don't think, I think it's actually like that. We just don't have the scale yet. Really? Because isn't pickup basketball fun for everybody? That was my impression. Well, that's kind of another dimension, right? About, well, it does seem like from other things I've read that being good at something makes a big difference to how much fun people have at it. (laughs) And so even if basketball is fun for everybody, even if they're not very good, I would guess that it's much more fun for people that, have the advantages that make them good at it because it seems like like the outliers theory of success is sort of like you have some advantage that compounds over and over and over again that makes it much more likely that you succeed at something so if you are taller than average as a 10 year old you're going to play a little bit better basketball and you're going to get more attention from your coaches and you're going to have more exciting opportunities to play for better teams and that just compounds over and over and over again until you become one of the best players But I think if you don't have that innate skill, you're less likely to get lucky in that way and have the same experience, which by the way, I should say like, I think it's really a bummer that they're just what you're born with makes such a big impact on so many outcomes in your life. (laughs) I can't make that clear, but it's interesting to think about and what does it mean and how you can, you change your behavior knowing kind of what the rules are for different endeavors in life and, where you have advantages and disadvantages. I think that's what makes freestyle exciting is the mental part is so large of the equation. Like the weight of the mental part is so big a piece that you can exceed like your or given genetics. Well, I, I would have agreed with that statement if you said you can exceed your body type, but wouldn't the mental game be a big part of genetics? I have no idea. I'm sure you can. I don't know. I usually separate those two out. I'll just put just the body type in the, I guess we were, were we born hardworking? I don't know how that works. Well, I, I think about this a lot. I think I was born with a lot of luck in so many different ways, but I think depending on your perspective and what your goals are in life, like if your goals were just, measures that people think are important, but I think tend to not be that important. Like if your goal is just to sort of like do well in school and have a successful career and like be respectable, quote unquote, you and I, our biggest luck was being born with like a degree of hardworkingness and conformity. Like we like check a lot of boxes, good and bad that make us like ideal (laughs) people in, you know, modern society but we would like probably not be nearly as valuable in the 1500s or something. (laughs) Oh, I mean, yeah, 
it's because we have so much autonomy right now. Like if we were born as a knight, I think we would be okay or royalty. But if we were like a, I don't know what, what's the peasant? If we were a peasant, it wouldn't matter <laughs> that we were hardworking. Yeah. It's just sort of like, I think about it a lot in school. Like it's not obvious that humans should do well being forced as young, energetic children to sit in a room from nine to four every day during their youth. And it's not surprising that I don't know what the numbers are, oh, but a majority we're have of a whole episode on this. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of opinions on personalization and how that should be everything. Well, I guess I'll just finish this on and say it's not surprising that maybe a vast majority of people don't do very well under that. But you and I did pretty well under that. So that's mm. just luck that we were born that way. And I think mm. it was that we were born that way because I think as a six year old, how much change could, how much nurture could have allowed me to just, have the capacity to sit and be interested in, you know, social studies in first grade. So I don't I know. See. It's lucky that we weren't born Spartans that we have to like fight for our life every day with our hands. Yeah. I think if we had to fight, I don't know if we'd be very good. I don't know. I do think though, I shouldn't say this because, you know, it's my career, but I think I have a lot more genes helping me be good at school than I do at work because I find it a lot harder to sit in front of a computer and work all day than I did to sit in class all day. So it wasn't a, it, the through line of luck didn't necessarily continue. Uh, I see. I'm the opposite of you. Yeah. Anyways, I derailed us completely, but I had fun with that. Mob hopping. <laughs> so last time we talked a little bit about mob hopping because Larry had asked a question about mob hopping tips. And because neither one of us was prepared, we were kind of, off the rails and you were definitely considered one of the preeminent mob hoppers and you are as you just mentioned as an adult much more hardworking and diligent than i am and so you've prepared your manifesto so let's start going through it tell me what are your what are you calling this like the rules of mob hopping sure we can start with that we can title it later okay but there's three main sections so the sections are fundamentals, feel, and flavor. So we'll go like section by section. I like the alliteration. That's very non-Ryan yeah. of you. Good work. Okay. There might be a bunch of non-Ryan things in here. Okay. Okay. So we're going to start with fundamentals and we'll go one big section at a time. So under fundamentals, I have two, five sub sections that we'll go one by one. There are the moves, lanes, roles or jobs, positioning and momentum. So what's important about fundamentals are these are the things that everyone should know how to do and they should be able to recognize when it's happening in the jam. And these are things that apply to every mob up. It's like every mob up has all of these things and doing any of these things is a positive effect. So mm -hmm. I'm going to use a cooking analogy throughout like all of this. And so like doing these things just make a better meal overall. Okay. And when you're just starting out, this is where you start because the second two categories are all about more advanced things. Okay. So we'll go one by one. So moves. So I think moves are one of the most under what is it misunderstood things because when people are doing freestyle, you think about moves, 
but it's not about the moves. We'll get to that later. But for mob offing, you need four moves. And these are the ones you should learn in order of importance. So the first one is a throw. You need a strong, at the moment, clock throw because people are right-handed. And that that's like 50% of your contribution to the mob op is having a good throw. Yeah. The next most important thing is a catch, then a shoot. So like a, any rim shoot or downward drag shoot, like the same, and a brush. So not included in that list is a delay, which I don't think you need for a good mob op. Like I've theorized that in an A jam, you can be just as good in that jam with just those four moves. Like you don't delay at all in the A jam. Yeah. Yeah. I always joke with people that you spend all this time learning the delay just so you never have to do it again. So, and I think that's <laughs> yeah. especially true in the mob bop because you need to keep the disc moving more and the flat delay is going to slow that down. But there's obviously situations where it makes sense, but you certainly don't need it. Okay. So moving on, the next fundamental after you're learning your moves, you have your four moves. It's time to enter the jam now. So the next thing you need to learn is lanes. So lanes are kind of like where you stand and where you run in mm -hmm. the most ideal situation. So we're just going to assume we're at the beach and the wind is coming down the beach. So like if you were to walk with the wind, you're just like walking along the shore parallel, okay. like you're not getting wet and you're not like going inland <laughs> either. And what happens is everyone lines up across the beach. So everyone is making a line perpendicular to the wind. And that's kind of just like the default starting position. And you can go more advanced from there. But like that's if you just are actually I'm going to I kind of want to like give basic advice and then advanced advice. But I don't know which order to do it in. I think we should just do all the basic advice first. Okay. Like you're just like st learning. I always tell people because I think it's a little easier. I do say be perpendicular to the wind, but then I say make sure let the wind hit your chest. If the wind is hitting your chest, <laughs> you're facing in the right direction. Yep. Oh, oh yeah. This was also another thing. Were we going to do how to do this thing or just like what it is and why it's important? Because like those two are different. I don't think we have time to like how to do it. I think mean, it's just what it is and how it, why it's important is a I better discussion. Fine. Yeah, it's also kind of hard okay. to describe how to do things sometimes on a podcast, yeah. especially in freestyle. But obviously we do it every now and then. And maybe there'll be times that make sense today, but we'll see. Okay, so lanes. Learn how to do it. It's important because you're going to be working with other people. And you need to know what is the default baseline in order to deviate that because deviating has consequences, which we'll talk about later. Okay. The next one is your roles or the job. So it's not like doing a chess role. It's like your, your I job. Like you didn't role. describe lanes enough though. Like I don't you know, know if everyone knows what a lane is. Okay. So it's like on a track, you have the lines painted and everyone runs in their own like lane. And so they don't hit each other. It's the same thing in freestyle. So the disc is moving across the lanes back and forth and it's going wherever it wants. Yeah. But the people run towards the wind in their lane to avoid getting in each other's way. And so one other analogy to that, you I'll do basketball, but it can be any sport. Like in most sports, there's positions like midfielders or defenders or attackers. We'll get there. Well, I just was gonna say <laughs> okay. that like um freestyle sort of has the same thing, but it's kind of like that track lane you say. 
But one important thing about lanes is it's not like each person is assigned to a lane. Like the lanes are fixed and you can move in and out of them. But like, I'm already probably getting too advanced and messing you up. But <laughs> I just sort of wanted to convey the concept that there's like some theoretical idea of like, here is a lane that people can move in and out of, but it's there. So like, it's like your track lane example. If you understood that runners were allowed to switch in and out of the lanes. Yep. Okay. We'll just go straight into, that's actually a good transition. So on a track, if you've seen it, the lanes are numbered and one is on the left and like eight is usually on the right. There's usually eight lanes and we're going to be in a clock mob up for right now. So when you throw a disc clock, it will naturally hyzer out or process to the left. So if you like throw it in the middle, if you stand in the middle lane and you throw it just perfectly flat, perfectly straight, it's going to fall to lane one. So lane one is the catching lane and each lane kind of has its own role or job and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like you said, you can, it doesn't matter what you are, but when you're standing in the lane, you kind of take over that role. So you can switch what lane you're in to switch which role you are. Yeah. So we'll go through the roles. So I think the one, if you're just starting, well, no, we'll go in order of difficulty to be that role. So I think the easiest role to be is the middleman. So all the middle lanes on the track, because that person's job is keep the momentum of the disc. So whatever the disc is doing when it's coming to you, just like bump it and just continue its path to the next person to the right or the left. And another. It's also easy because okay, you have the one, biggest margin of error. Yeah, so you have people biggest, on both sides that can protect you. So even if you miss hit it, there's likely someone in another lane that can recover it. Exactly. And the next thing that we, I think this is a universal thing, but do you use the phrase hoop or help? Well, I use the word hoop for hooping and I use the word. But you don't say hoop or help. <laughs> I don't think I ever Seattle used the, thing? Oh, sorry. I was thinking of help in another context in sports. You mean like I need help? No, it's more like when the disc comes to you, you or as a middleman, you have this decision every time the disc comes to your lane mm -hmm. is you either hoop it if it's already on a good path to the next person because there's always someone next to you because you're in the middle or you have to help it by bumping it or brushing it or Oh, I love it. that idea. That's a great framework for it. So hooping, even if it's not a hoop, it just means that the disc is already on an ideal flight path and you're basically yep. going to frame it or get out of the way. And helping exactly. means it's not quite where it needs to be and you're going to fix it to put it in the right spot. Exactly. That's great. I love that. And people get so that wrong so yeah. much and it's so frustrating. <laughs> that's what happens when that goes wrong is when you see someone jumping for their guidance and someone just brushes it <laughs> right in front of them <laughs> yeah. out of their guidance. That's a, <laughs> exactly. that's a help that should have been a hoop. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so that's I'm role. sorry. I'm really happy about this. So poaching is the, is inappropriate <laughs> helping. Yep. Okay, cool. Cool. Okay. All right. So moving on the catching lane, which is lane one, which is the farthest to the left and a clock mob up. This is the second hardest role. So all the main job or responsibility of this person is to catch the disc at the end of the co-op. Yeah. And like you said, catching more often is better. Yeah. And as you learn to read the mob up, there are moments when 
the tension builds. We'll get to this later, but it's their job to like seal it. No yeah. one else is going to do it because they're not. That's like not their role. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the hardest role is the person on the right is the crosswind setter. Cause it, I think it's, would you say that's the hardest move, the hardest basic move? I think without question, the cross, it's the hardest it's the thing to do. Yeah. Cause it's not only it's, it fits classically within the category of things that people think they can do, but they can't because it's something that's really, it's not a on off yes, no switch. It's a how good, how bad spectrum. So just cause you hit the disc and it goes crosswind doesn't mean you succeeded. It's really <laughs> about making it the ideal flight path so that you maximize the optionality for the catcher or whatever you're trying to do. But it's definitely the hardest thing to do. Yep. Do you think Jake, the greatest mob offer of all time, is great just because he has the best crosswind roll set? I think it's a big part of it. Because it, like in basketball, they talk about kind of how I said with Steph Curry has like gravity. And so just knowing that he's involved in something makes everyone else's job a lot easier. It's like what's nice about Jake is you know where the disc is going to go and that it's going to be perfect and you can plan accordingly. Whereas a lot of other situations, you're not certain how the disc is going to come out and you have to make backup options that don't optimize your you know, list of opportunities. It's kind of hard to describe, but basically like just knowing that Jake is about to set it, it opens up the field so that everyone else knows what to do and where to be. Like for instance, if Jake's about to cross and set it and you're in the catching spot, I'm pre-setting my hoop. Like I don't even need to <laughs> think about it, but if someone else was doing it, I have to wait to see where the set's going to come out to know whether or not the hoop is going to be there and what kind of hoop that I need. Mm, yeah that's such a good way to put it cool okay that was the the jobs can i say one jam. more thing okay. about the jobs oh, yeah i think that in every other sport it's pretty obvious that people specialize in certain kinds of jobs and it's actually kind of hard to move them so even in today they say in basketball it's like positionless and so that it's not so rigid about who's the one two three four five but like everyone is still pretty Everyone has a preference and a stronger skill set. And usually it's like fours can be fives, but probably not ones. So one thing I think is worth trying to figure out about yourself as a mob opper is what roles are you strongest in and what roles are you weakest in? You can do whatever you want with that information. If you're like me, you'll try to practice your weakest role to get better at it. But you also might think like, hey, this mob up isn't working out very well. Maybe I'll move myself to my strong position and then I can help this mob up more. And that's like definitely a concept in other sports. It's sort of like the, a big thing with the Lakers a couple of years ago was they would move their one of their best players to the five. So they're like, he likes to play the four, but when we're losing, we make him play the five because he's better at it. So like <laughs> if I think a mob off's not going that well, I'll always move to the catching position because I know I'm a really good catcher. And so if I feel like the jam needs a boost, I'll swap into that role because I think I can have a bigger impact on the mob op. It's like comfort picks in dota drafting yeah exactly but i think a lot of people first of all aren't even aware of the rules but then they'd have no idea what their strengths are but i also think your guide is generally good for everybody like it's, it's easiest to be in the middle then the catching position then the setting position so if you're not sure or you're uncomfortable or maybe you're going to the a jam but you're really a b player 
maybe put yourself in the middle where you're kind of safest and and then vice versa if you're the a jammer going into the b jam maybe go into the setting position because even if that's not your strongest you are the best player and you might have the biggest impact in that role yeah that makes a lot of sense i think we'll get a lot to the application when we get into like the more advanced okay. sections that's your polite so way these of are saying just the you're things, ruining yeah. my my flow here but sorry keep <laughs> yeah. going oh yeah these are just the things where if you do it it just makes the jam better regardless but we'll get to the part where you can really elevate. Okay, so next thing is positioning. So this is things like rotating, where you're changing, where you are, or which lane you're in. So it's not like on a track where there's just eight lanes. You yeah. can always make another lane to the left or the right. And I think a common one is when you're on the run, brush run, and the person on the far left that is normally the catcher gets the disc but in a way they couldn't catch it someone can rotate around and make a new catching lane to their left and then preserve the momentum yeah so basically the catcher has to become the helper but someone yep. needs to weave into the new catching lane so that the former catcher has somewhere to help too that's sort of confusing yeah. when i explain it that way but basically <laughs> like the ideal flight path is not there for the catch so what are your options the best option is, like you said, to create a new catching lane and have someone rotate into that so that the former catcher is now really a setter. Yep, exactly. And this goes for not just catching, but any you can like rotate to get another hoop in or something, rotate yeah. to help out the person doing the hardest role on the right side that needs yeah. someone to bail to. And then I was going to touch on one thing you brought up last time, which is in your lane, you can cheat forward or backwards. So you can either be ahead of the disc or behind the disc mm -hmm. based on what's happening. So I think your classic example is the person in the catching lane should all should be behind the disc when the set is being made yeah. to give the best possible and chance of success. That's also good yeah. advice for the setter, right? Because it's I think a lot of people set you where you are and they don't set you where you want to go. So you should set more in front of and in the clock example to the left of the catcher because that gives them the runway to do whatever they want. But if you set it right at them, you really limit their optionality and also kind of the explosiveness of whatever they end up being able to do. Yep. I was wondering if this fits. This is more like all freestyle. So it's not a mob op thing, but aiming the disc is so important. It's what separates the top 10% from the rest. Yeah. Is when Jake crosswind sets, he knows what catch the person who's receiving it is going to do. And he puts it there. I think most people just set it across and they're like, I need to hit it this hard for it to go this far. Yeah. But it's a much more complex calculation than that. I don't know if this is the. A perfect segue to this point, but one thing that I think happens sometimes is that the setter and the catcher are each correcting for each other and then they create a mismatch. So <laughs> something that I do that maybe I do too much is that I hang back, I'm in the catching lane and I'm hanging back far enough that the setter is either not setting to me because they think I'm not ready to catch it or they try to set it to me, not to where I sh quote unquote should be. And so like it creates this big mismatch where I'm thinking like, no, no, believe me, I'm where I want to be set it where it's supposed to go. And I will get it because, you know, you're not expecting this, but I'm going to do a triple and I need more room to be able to do it than I might normally need. 
So maybe like my point would be is sometimes you have to set it, you have to factor in the person, right? But you should set it to the right spot. And if the other person's good, they know where that spot is. And you have to tr- like, you have to kind of trust each other sometimes. Does that point make sense? It does. That actually brings up two other points I was thinking. One is, should have this been in my list? It's not. But communication, like just yelling out what should happen. Like when you hoop, usually you yell hoop. So the person receiving it knows yeah. not <laughs> to be in the right place. Like we've talked about this before and you say this to me all the time. And you're like, I didn't expect you to do that thing there. So I'm always telling you like, no, no, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. You're like, set it to me, set it to me, set it to me. So even though you don't believe me that I'm where I want to be, I'm like telling you, no, no, this is actually is where I want to be. But I was wondering if you were going to get into, and this is a little bit in the how-to category, so I don't want to go crazy with it, but like a couple of quick tips about the lanes and the roles is think about everyone's wingspan, right? So like you kind of want to be within, like imagine what someone would look like if they were holding their arms way out or like holding <laughs> their legs way out. And you want to be within like a foot or two of their wingspan. You don't want to crowd into their lane. You need to give them enough room so they can stretch out. But you want to be close enough that you're there to follow up on what they need. And if you are closer to them, you're signaling a hoop, basically. It's like if I'm standing within your wingspan, that means I'm trying to poop it to you or leg over or something. But like otherwise, I need to be out of your way so that you can expand to do what you want. Does that yeah. sound right? That sounds right. I was... But I- I like it because it's like an easy rule. Like if you want to know where you're supposed to be, because sometimes people are standing too close or too far. And I think of this a lot because like I said earlier, I have this huge wingspan and people underestimate it a lot. But just think about someone's wingspan and stand accordingly. Yep. We'll get to this later, but when you break the fundamentals, like it's it's valuable to know when to break the fundamentals. And we'll get to that about like positioning and standing closer too far. But yeah. you're thinking like the default... The lanes on the track are all different sizes depending on who's standing there. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly right. I, I always, think I'm right about that, but I can see an argument that I'm wrong. I'm going to argue against that once we get there. I have a, okay. a section just about I mean, obviously that. keep in mind that people's <laughs> wingspans don't differ that much. Hmm. So like my wingspan versus yours is like two feet. It's not, that's not a crazy number, you know? Yeah, but it definitely makes a difference. Like yeah. those margins matter. Okay. <laughs> okay. Did you have anything else on positioning? I don't think so. Okay. And then the last category of the fundamentals is momentum. And this is about building the energy. So it starts with the throw and it ends with the catch. And the catch is the crescendo. And I was thinking about putting this farther down, but it's really bait or it's really like so important that everyone should be thinking about it all the time and it like belongs in the fundamental section. And yeah. it's when someone throws it, it's the start. It's like fresh slate. And every touch you do builds or changes it somehow. And the catch is like the crescendo. So when you're making all your decisions, you should be trying to at least sustain or build the energy. And we'll get to like how you do that later on. And then the so it's one last... Like, do you mean like everything should be... A little bit harder than the thing before, like something like that. I think I got harder a little too really ahead the because right I was word. gonna. I have it all broken down later. Okay, okay. Like what? How to like sustain the energy? But that's just what you focus on, like high level goals. And the okay. last one was indies because there's always like, do you do indies in the mob up? And I think it relates to the energy because there's times when doing an indie definitely 
elevates the jam and there sometimes it does not and this yeah. is one of those things you learn over time when to do it i'm going to clarify because i think this is what you mean it's pretty rare for a mob op to have a true indie but it's more like an indie in the sense that you break from one touch two touch three touch freestyle where it's kind of i think of it as like a breakaway like instead of an indie it's really a breakaway where you're on your own doing your own thing for a little bit and i think that's what you mean really yeah i would yeah i would include that and just like you get thrown the disc and you do the whole thing yourself in the same category in the mob op setting yeah i'm thinking too advanced like i think that happens when everyone else is upwind and you're downwind and you need to indie so that they have time to recover yeah i think recover is the easiest opportunity to indie is when yeah. everyone else is recovering. Yeah. But I do think there is, it's interesting because I don't think people talk about it and it sounds like a bad thing to say, but I think there is a certain cadence for indies, even in a mob op. Yep. I was going to, the best example I can give is that beach weekend jam we had where it came down to just the two of us. And there was a point where we just indeed back and forth. Like maybe you could argue we weren't mob offing at that point, but well, there's also two of us. So yeah. it wasn't, it was, by definition, it wasn't a mob up. It's funny because I just think about Jake and Matt. I just feel like every time we're mob upping, maybe it's once an hour or like a couple times a day. There's a moment that it kind of makes sense and everyone just sort of recedes and you let them do their thing and it kind of rebuilds energy. And I think a lot of times it happens because you're on a brush run and maybe you do a couple of cool things and everyone just kind of hangs back. And it just sort of happens naturally. They're like, you go like you're, you're on something (laughs) here and we're going to step back and, and let you do it. Yeah. I think it's for me when it happens is I'll see you do something harder than I could ever do. And I'm like, I could not sustain or increase the energy of this anymore. So I'll stop and just let you finish Yeah, That's actually a great way to think about it. Think about the rule you said right before, which is you're trying to crescendo. And if someone sets the bar too high they might just need to finish it with an indie then kind of deflate the combo by forcing it i mean one of my rules if i was giving rules was just don't force it and sometimes not forcing it means taking the indie but <laughs> anyways it should be pretty rare i feel like it's a once an hour kind of thing yeah but depends depends <laughs> that's a good way okay so that depends then- a lot on your skill level too <laughs> i feel like really only the higher skilled players get to indie and mob bobs yeah, actually, I have a section about that later where. OK, yeah. OK, OK, so that's the end of my fundamental section. Did you have anything else or something I missed? Um, I don't think so. No, go ahead. Cool. OK, so now we're in feel. This is it's not about the moves. It's about the moment. So that's what I mean by my that- favorite phrase of yours. <laughs> Your favorite. What I mean by I also, that is, I also like yeah. help or hoop. I feel like that needs to be a shirt. You think so? That predates me. I, I thought huh. that was like a thirty-year-old phrase because everyone said it in Seattle. Never heard it. Yeah. Okay. So, what I mean by that is, there are many factors that combine to make a good mob op. It's like cooking a meal, and all of these different ingredients. Or, oh no, let me back up. There are different types of meals that are all good. Like there's savory and then there's sweet meals that are very different, but you both would, you, there's like good of each. And the same yeah. thing for mob ops. Like mob ops have like different types and they're, I don't know, they can be good in their own ways, but they're built out of 
different raw components. And so I was going to go through all the ingredients that make like a good mob op. And so the first one is move selection. So this is just like what move you do in the moment to like, yeah, it's whatever move you pick. It's not as big a deal as I think most people think, because I think most people think it's like half of everything is what move you pick, but no, it's like much smaller than that. The second one is the timing and speed. So this is like how fast you do it, then positioning, then music, and then the player context. So this one's the most confusing. I'll go through this one last, but it's like knowing it's like when a new player does something for the first time and everyone knows it's the first time that's like player context. Yeah. Okay. So I think these are the things that you combine in different ways to make the jam. So a common, okay. So we'll go with like a basic example is the a jam. So in the a jam, you usually have harder moves. The speed and timing is usually much faster and the positioning is like way more dynamic. People are moving around all the time and they're yeah. like, they can hear the music and because the disc doesn't drop, they can catch it on the music notes a lot more often. And in the player context, everyone knows what everyone else can do. So when something unusual happens, it's a big deal and people know yeah. it's a big deal because it's unusual, but Okay, so we're going back to fundamentals. You, Like I said, you only need four moves to be in the A jam or just like any jam in general. We're going to start with move selection and why it's not important at all. Because okay. you have all these other ingredients that are just as important as what move you do. And you can make a the brush valuable to the mob op by like varying all these other things. It's like... When you're cooking, you can what's like a like potatoes. You can like make potatoes like a million different ways. It's the same thing. I was like, oh, I can't think of the exact way. I want it the other way, where like the most basic anyway. But yeah, so we'll go with the example of the brush because it's I think my favorite mob op move because it's it's a connector piece and it's overlooked because it's. I think it gets a bad name because it's so easy and it's a the, but a the brush with good timing positioning. And if it's music, it's like, so it like adds so much to the jam, even though maybe it's not like the sexiest thing in the moment. So I agree. It's funny. So in the jam, at some point, the jam, meaning the Florida event, Daniel comes up to me looking pretty bedraggled and sits down and he says, you know, like the longer I played, just seems like 99% of the time, all that really matters is. And I thought he was going to say one of two things, a throw or the the brush because we're on the beach. And he's like, the the brush is the right answer, like 99% of the time. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're so right about that. That's so true. And I know I told the story, but like one of the lessons that I learned from Lisa Hendricks is when it was pretty early on, she was telling me about, we were talking about Matt and she's just like, you know, kind of what makes Matt great is that he's just doing the simple things that everyone else can do, but better. Or it's not even that it's better. It's just like he, like that's all he needs to do. Like he doesn't need to do crazy stuff because most of the time the right answer is a the brush or something pretty basic. Exactly. It's kind of like you don't need the fanciest ingredients to make the best meal. You just need the right ingredients. 
Yeah, I also think, especially a, a the brush that's in the one touch context that moves it to the next player. I mean, that's a valid move. There's nothing, it's almost wrong to call it a the brush. It's just the right, right call. Also think kind of what we talked about last time, all mob off conversations are a little bit colored by the fact that they happen more often on the beach. And I think brushing on the beach is a much bigger part of the game. And that brushing becomes more and more important the more wind there is. And I was even telling Brendan when we were playing this last weekend, because the wind was really heavy. One of the signs of a skilled player is realizing when they're at the point where the, the brush is the whole game. Like it's a certain <laughs> point, it's like above 25 miles per hour. It's like if you're trying to do something other than the brushing, I don't know why this is this of the brush becomes your double spinning barrel guide us after a certain point. You just have to sort of accept that. That's like I the context, a lot. the context. Yeah. I thought about a lot of the jam because I'm seeing all these people trying rolls when the wind was pretty heavy and failing and just sort of like, Oh, these are people who don't realize that we're outside of at least their roll conditions. Um, I'm kind of mixing your point into other points, but I get the importance of the brushing and simple things. Yep. Okay. Was there any, I feel like there's one other thing that I thought you were maybe going to say when you were talking about. So like I would have said one variation of what you said is it's not about the move, but about the move category. And then maybe add like simpler is better. Okay. So like, it doesn't really matter whether you do a bad attitude brush, a soul brush, a kick brush, a the brush, a triple fake brush. What matters is that you pick the right category brushing. And if you do that, like that's step one, great. That's a victory. The right thing to do there was to brush it. Step two is realizing what is the optimal kind of brush to try given the conditions, the moment and the combo, like the move in the moment theory and like what the jam needs right now. It's like the jam needs some help, even though maybe I have a good triple fake brush option. Maybe it's just about doing the, the brush to keep it moving, but getting the category right is I think much more important than getting the move right. And then once you get the category, you know, I think generally it's better to err towards the easier side of the category, especially in a mob op, because you have, I'm meandering a little bit, but everything is amplified in a mob op. So in a two person jam, you have, I think, more leeway to try your harder move because less depends on you getting it right. But in a 10 person mob op, when you're deciding, oh, I'm going to do a brush, but what kind of brush am I going to do? it's way more important that you execute the brush well. And so you should lean towards the easier kind of brush within that category. Okay. Yeah. That was like a really good way to explain just what I laid out first, but I was going to follow it up with another question for you. Do you think a drop is the best move for that moment? Sometimes like is a drop ever the best move? I think Absolutely. And I, I call this like the Joey Hidaklin principle. Now he uses it in the context of your question, but he also uses it in a principled context of sort of like he will not do the wrong thing just to avoid dropping it. He will do the right thing, even if it means the drop. And I think something like that can apply in the mob op too. There's, so I'll give like an extreme example, but let's say like it's set perfectly for a catch, but maybe like you stumble or trip or something and you have the option of going for the catch, knowing you're probably going to drop it or ending up on like a 10 brush run where you're just trying to reconfigure the disc and then catch it later. (laughs) I'd much rather you drop it. The right thing for you to do was to go for the catch in that moment. Maybe the way to answer it is 
to pick your, it's all about the moment. So if the moment requires you go for the catch, for instance, but it's at a high risk of dropping, I want you to go for the right decision and drop it, then make the wrong decision and kind of just peter off with some meaningless, like the mo you ruined the moment, you can't bring it back. And I would have rather you dropped it on the right moment. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So I was going to go back to something we answered in but the you, previous. Do you agree with that, yeah, right? I, I agree. Think it's, I agree. Okay. That's what I was getting at. I was going to bring it to one. I think I gave bad advice in the last podcast about going for your new move. And I wanted to put it in this context. It's like, I call them once a jam moves. And yeah. let's say you're working on a new move and you want to show it off in the jam because that's exciting. There is a moment in the jam where you get the crosswind roll set and you can show off your new catch and if you drop it it's exciting because like it's new for you and in your player context it's just attempting something you've never done before is exciting but and it's in the right category and at the right moment exactly but i call those once a jam moves but i think it's like it's always scary to do something that's gonna drop but i think we should be allowed to drop it one like yeah, it's not bad to drop it once, but to drop it multiple times does bring down the jam. But you can just avoid dropping it multiple times by just being like, that was my one drop of the or my one once a jam move. Do you yeah. do? Well, I'm just thinking more of it as a dropping idea. I think it's something that I think a lot of the best players are, I think a lot of the best players become the best players because they are willing to drop it when that's the right decision. I think a lot of things I see from, less skilled players or players that are kind of stuck or plateauing is they're so afraid of dropping it that they are building bad habits and bad decision-making and they get stuck in a habit that they can't break out of. So to pick the easy example we always use is you're trying to hit your guidance and you just keep brushing it over and over again, trying to make <laughs> the set more and more perfect. But at a certain point, it's better to just do the brush as best you can and just commit to go for the guidance because it's, the right time to do it. You don't want to ruin the moment by the brushing it 10 times, just brush it. Even if it's totally off, go for the catch. And like that, I prefer that drop than the long brush run, which is probably going to end up drop anyways. Let's be real because we get back into flow quicker because a drop takes less time than whatever you were going to do instead of it. And you're building the habit that will ultimately get you to the point where you can consistently make the right decision in flow in the right moment. Mm -hmm. I hear that advice a lot where uh, don't brush it till it's perfect, just like two brushes and then catch it. Do you think, I'm wondering if that's good advice or not. I'm wondering if it's like, we just don't know a better way to teach it. So that's the way we say, cause it's so hard when you're starting to brush it twice. I, I mean, this is a classic where we don't have any data, so we have no idea, but I think it's the right advice because I have to give myself this advice all the time. So for instance, I was working on a new kind of double the other day and it's kind of like everything's the weak side for me and I was having trouble with it and I finally had to give myself the advice I give everyone else. So I was just like, I'm just going to set it and go for it and I'm not going <laughs> to stop in the middle of my spin and try to like, especially when I'm practicing by myself, like, what does it matter? Like, why should I stop in the middle of the move I'm trying to do to try to fix it? No, I'm just going to set it. And if the disc lands 30 feet away from my body, I don't care. It's like, I, I, I mean, another way to think about it is people are trying to reduce the margin of error 
but it's still going to be an error. So I say like miss big, like fail hard because <laughs> in the long run, that'll get you to where you want to be sooner. Whereas if you try to fail soft, it's going to take you longer to learn the thing that you're going to do. And maybe you'll never learn it because you'll just build the habit of trying to avoid the big failure. I see. Maybe I was thinking about it wrong. Cause like in that case where you brush it a million times to get to the catch, the catch is what you're focused on and the brushing is secondary. Yeah. And maybe if there is some secondary thing that you need to practice your primary, you should limit it like that. I don't know. Cause like if you're in the jam, just brushing was what you're focusing on. Then like brushing it 10 times in a row is a positive, but I'm wondering if, you have to do the 10 times in a row jam first to get any value out of the catching jam. Well, this is kind of a cheat code, right? But I would just say go practice by yourself the brushing <laughs> it 10 times in a row. Yeah. Or like if you're focused on brushing, focus on brushing and let someone else do the catch. You know, like I do think I go back and forth on this, but I do think when I practice, I try to make sure I'm focusing on one thing. It's like every now and then I'll cheat and I'll be like, I'm working on this catch but I'm going to throw in a move before it that I'm also kind of working on. And sometimes I think it's a good idea, but I bet you most of the time it's a bad idea. And I should say, forget about trying to do a couple moves before the thing I'm working on, just work on the thing I'm working on. So if you're working on going on a brush run and hitting a guidus, you should probably work is work separately on brushing and work separately on guidus and then work on putting the two together. But I think a really simple way to think about it is you should always Ooh, I don't know if this is the right answer. <laughs> this is a rule that it's meant to be broken. But I kind of think err on the side of trying to do what you want to do, not doing things that you don't ultimately want to do because you think it's a stepping stone to the thing that you want to do. <sighs> that's complicated. Is I'm not that sure like, that's right. I'm trying to think of your tennis analogy where some guy was like, you swing the tennis racket once per day in the perfect form. And that's how you learn how to swing a racket like that. And like you don't do a thousand reps and work your way up. You just do it perfect one time a day. I, yeah, I think that is right. I mean, the analogy I always use, and it comes up a lot in the context of rolling when people are learning how to roll, I sort of say like you, in my opinion, in my experience, you can't easily iterate towards a proper role. You have to work on it properly from the very beginning, knowing that you're going to mess it up 99 times out of a hundred until you get it right. I think I, in my, yeah, I agree. The, rule could be, the analogy I use is the labyrinth. And I say, like, if you think about a maze, like you might do in like a cereal box, sometimes you're really close to the middle physically, but you're as far away as possible from actually getting to the middle. And like, that's <laughs> what I worry about. Like you're learning a bad role because it gets you closer to the middle sooner, but you have walled yourself off from ever getting the role that you want. That makes so much sense. I tell people that all the time. I'm like, there is a shortcut here, but you're not going to take it because it will hamstring you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Like the shortcut's going to get you so you can see what you want, but you'll never actually have it. So mm -hmm. forget the shortcut and go the right way. But I think that's right. But I obviously I think there are times where you have to, there are building blocks to certain things, but usually it's not like learn it wrong and then we'll fix it later. It's usually like learn this easier thing. And then this harder thing, like usually when there's building blocks to learning something, you're not learning something that you're later going to have to forget. It's like maybe one rule is if if you're learning something that later you know you need to un, unlearn, stop. <laughs> <laughs> like make sure everything you learn, you will want to retain and will need going forward. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think of exceptions, but I can't think of any. Yeah. It's hard. It's also... It's hard. Yeah, it's like 
I'm also wondering if it's move by move. Cause like the role is a good example where your completion is the goal. I mean, you got to start with the best one, but compare that to throwing where you're like, I don't care if it's even accurate, just throw it as hard as you can on your first one. But at the role, you're like, no, the first one has to be as good as the finished product. Throwing is kind of a good example though. Cause I do think you can iterate towards throwing it properly. But at the same time, you're always trying to throw it properly. I'm, I never say like, throw it this way for a little while. And then later I'll show you the right way to do it. It's sort of like work on this and you'll get better. Like, I think it's two different questions. Like some moves you iterate towards and some moves are like, you just increase your odds of getting it right over time. It's like I iterated towards getting a better throw. Like maybe every year I added 10 RPM to my throw slowly, but surely. But the rule was I had a quote unquote perfect role, let's say in year three, but it was only one out of a hundred times. And now that perfect role is whatever, like 95 out of a hundred times. Like I didn't work slowly towards the right kind of role. I just increased my success rate at that kind of role. I see. You don't think you throw 10% above your average, like one out of a hundred times. And you could have been doing that 95 out of a hundred times. <sighs> Maybe <laughs> there's no way to know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's so hard. Got to yeah. think about this more. Anyways, okay. you've gotten really off topic. Yeah. Bring me back to your mob op rules. Okay. For, so f- like, uh, what is it? Conclude the feel section. I want to talk about playing to the level of the jam. So mm-hmm. I think uh, the my analogy is if you it's like fast food versus fine dining, like you can have good of both. It's just like, what yeah. is the context of the situation? And so when you go into the A jam, you have to play at the A jam level. But when you go into like the other jams, you should probably play to the level of those jams as well to have the best the best outcome like if you play a jam moves in the beginner jam it doesn't work it like doesn't actually it doesn't work simply as like you would you would doesn't just like increase the level of the jam it just like stands out instead i actually do agree with you which might be surprising to you and other people i might mitigate it a little bit by saying like i i don't try to play to the level of the people around me but i moderate my level based on the people I'm playing with, right? Like I should still be the best player in the jam. If I'm in the D jam, I'm not going to play at a D level, but instead of playing at like an A level, I might play at like a B level or C level or something. So like I do like rate it. And then I do think this is another one, like all the rules where there's exceptions or there's like times you have to bring your A game to stretch it. But real quick anecdote, I was thinking about this because I was listening to one of my basketball podcasts. And it's a podcast by a professional NBA player. And he was talking about playing at a pickup game. And he was kind of complaining how when he plays at a pickup game, he lowers his level a lot. And then people misinterpret how good he is. (laughs) And he's just sort of like, you don't understand that if you were pros, I would be playing at a much higher level. And if I wanted to, I would destroy you. And I think about this sometimes because I think one of my weaknesses, which I... I think I've talked about on the podcast. I don't remember is that my level of play swings a lot based on the players around me. So I play way better when I'm playing with top level players 
and way worse when I'm playing with less skilled players. Now, some of that is intentional, like we're talking about, but some of that I think is like a literal, I think of it as a weakness. Maybe like everybody has it to some degree, but it's, I mean, I think about like that video of me and you at Beach Weekend, like we're shredding because I'm playing just with you and we're playing at a really high level and I can trust you. I know what you're going to do. I know you're going to make the right decision. I can play super high. But I think sometimes I get frustrated, especially the last few years, because I'm playing mostly with brand new players. Or I just think like, <laughs> you don't realize how good I am, but I can't reach my level with you, which I can't say because that would be really mean. And I know even now I sound like super arrogant, but I think about this a lot because it's rarer and rarer that I get to play with people that are super skilled and like when it does happen, like that beach weekend, I'm like, oh man, I'm so good at this. And then all the rest of the time where I'm playing with my like brand new six week players, like, why am I so bad at this? Like I'm supposed to be good. <laughs> and I think some of it is that skill level thing. And there's real reasons for that. Like if people are giving you better sets, you can do crazier stuff. If you're getting better throws, you can do crazier stuff. But I think there's lots of other more like soft factors that play into that. Mm -hmm. And as you say, some of it is purposeful. Like you should be bringing your level or like moderating your level based on who you're playing with. Yep. For the up and coming players, like when you're playing with James, you only need the four moves to be at, to like when James goes to beach weekend and he's playing with me, I'm just doing those four moves over and over again. <laughs> like it doesn't like James can hit his peak with fundamental play from the ones well, around them. It's also yeah. good advice about, it's good advice too, because I think people kind of, especially like less skilled players playing with more skilled players, they do the opposite of what they should do, which is they kind of like try to go to the far reaches of their game. And that just brings everybody down. Like they play worse because they're trying to do things they're not comfortable with because they're trying to fit in. And the top players play worse because like, everything kind of suffers when you're not playing very well. Mm -hmm. But so it, but it kind of brings up a new point, which is not only should you moderate your like quote unquote skill level based on who you're playing with or like, mo I don't know, like moderate what you're trying to do. Like you have to kind of change your approach to what you're doing. It's not like you're just turning down the dial. Like I'm a 10 and I'm turning it down to eight. <laughs> it's like, no, I have to like change my style of play too based on the environment I'm in. It's like, for instance, I think about, when I'm playing with like new players, the downwind drag set goes from like the most important thing to the most important thing. <laughs> and it's all I do all day long is just downwind drag set, downwind drag set, downwind drag set. And like, of course I would do that in an A jam, but like you could draw a graph and it's sort of like percentage of crosswind sets versus downwind drag sets. I do way more crosswind sets in the A jam because A players are going to feed on that set and love it. Whereas new players are going to have no idea what to do with it. Um, whereas like the downwind drag set is like much more valuable in the B jam. Exactly. That was like, that was illustrate the player context point like really well. Yeah. Well, so that's interesting. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Or that's like one aspect of player context. I had to like broke it down to two parts. So it's like what I do and then others. So it's like when you were saying you're setting your newer players, the downwind drag set that's so important to recognize that you're in that situation and this set is now the go-to move. Yeah. But isn't there, there's like a second level too, which is knowing the specific details of what the other players can do and setting them up for that. Yeah. So not only am I going to give you a downwind drag set, 
I know you really like to do bad attitudes and that's your strength. <laughs> so I'm going to moderate my downwind drag set so that it's better positioned for you to hit your bad attitude, for instance. Yeah. So to go very advanced, I think the top mob hoppers know every move of every player in the jam. And they also know how many times they did the moves. So like in your example, the person who does the really good bad attitude, the first downwind drag set, you would set them for bad attitude. But the next time you set them for downwind drag set, you're like, no, I know they have another move and they already did their their A move. So I'm going to set them something else. That's a great point. I actually hear this a lot from top players, especially where like they mess up and they say, well, I wanted to do something different there. <laughs> so like one thing you have to avoid at all levels, but almost more at a high level is doing the right thing so much that you fall into the same patterns and you get stuck. And sometimes you're like, okay, like, I know this is the optimal downwind drag set for most of your moves, but we've already done that five times. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to give you a suboptimal set or like a different kind of set. And you're going to have to come up with a different answer. And that keeps it more interesting. Yeah. I think it's especially important because everyone around you also can see it as well. It's not just like, yeah, it adds like an extra bit of layering. Yeah. Let's see, did you have anything else? I was going to say one more thing. One other thing to add to player context would be if you know what roles the other players are good at, going back to the role mm -hmm. thing. So I just like I will try to go in the catching role if I want to fix the jam. I will try to push Jake into the cross-setting role if I think a jam <laughs> needs help because I know he's really good at that. Yeah. Okay. One thing I was going to mention is, uh, oh, yes. When you're playing, like the different ingredients work in different ways. So like timing and speed and positioning those are really valuable so it's like uh in the a jam like everything's cranked up to 10 but when you go to like the newer jam you don't have to bring down the different ingredients all at the same rates like speed and timing and positioning can always be at 10 no matter what jam you're in so even in the brushing jam rotating around and like knowing if you need to like <sighs> like smack this disc really hard or if it needs a finesse brush in this moment like that kind of decision making is like independent of this skill of the jam that's a great point that's kind of what i was thinking about when i said you don't just turn the dial down on all your skills it's sort of like you have to you imagine like a mixer board where <laughs> yeah. you've got like a hundred different levels like some of the levels you got to keep up at the top because they don't affect everybody else but then like other levels need to change based on who you're playing with. Yeah. So, and I think positioning especially is a great example. Like I think weaving brush runs are one of the things I do really often with players that are brand new because it's actually not that hard if they're being, well, it's almost like dancing. If you're leading them and you're the one really doing the weaving and they just kind of have to like brush it, you can kind of make it happen. So like, and I, I almost think positioning is something you should do more of and more, emphatically when you're the a player in the b jam like i feel like i run around a lot more when i'm in like a lower skill jam one because like obviously i can get more involved that way but two i think it just makes it easier for everybody else to have that movement coming from somewhere <laughs> yeah i agree okay i have a question for you do you think playing you're in the b jam but it's performing at the a jam level is that better than just being in the A jam? Yeah, I think anytime you're playing above your level, it's better. And like that's sort of a great tragedy of being an A player is that it becomes harder and harder to play <laughs> above your level. 
I mean, there is so many times, I feel like we talk about this sometimes, like me and you are playing and objectively we're shredding and we're both just so depressed. It's like, <laughs> we cool, did this before. We just caught 10, <laughs> yeah. 10 perfect, like weaving brush runs in a row. Like whoop de do like what's next. But then like, I was thinking about this, like I edited or I filmed video one day in the jam and as a classic, like I thought we were playing really well. And then I was watching the video and I was like, oh, it's kind of boring. But Katie Gimma hits one guide us. So like, I might have to make the video just for her <laughs> one guide us. Like, it was so exciting to see her do it. So anytime people are playing above their skill level, it's just more fun that way. Cool. Yeah. Did you have anything else on feel before we move on? No, let's all do right. it. So the last category, flavor. And this is all about rule breaking. So... Okay. Here's my theory. You learn the fundamentals and the more of the fundamentals you do, it elevates the jam just overall, but you can break the rules and do the opposite of the fundamentals to add flavor. So it's like spicing up your meal that you're cooking. Okay. I like this. So there it's a double edged sword. So on one hand, if the jam is going well, but it's bland you can do a thing where you just like run in front upwind of the person. So you're like two people are in one lane, but now you're the upwind guy and you're like doing tip backs and you're like in the person's face Yeah, that like spices it up and it can elevate the jam that way. But if you do that in every jam, then it's just like, you just like over season your food and you become a jam dominator. I think it's a great example of why you have to know your rules, like know the rules so you can break mm -hmm. them. Cause I think breaking the rules when you do, you have to do it intentionally and purposefully. And if you do that, you're in a, usually going to be in a pretty good situation. And, you know, I think especially among A players, you're like constantly breaking the rules. Like almost every single co-op, someone is breaking a rule at some point. But when you're playing in lower skill jams that are dragging, it's because people are consistently breaking the rules and they're totally oblivious <laughs> to it. Yeah. And that's what, that's what causes the problem a lot of the time. Um, so, yeah, I, I like that framework, though, of it's the... It's the spice to your meal. And so like any spice, you have to use it purposefully and maybe sparingly. Mm -hmm. I don't even like sparingly though, because like I said, I do think you break the rules constantly and you should, but you got to really know when and why to do it. Yeah. So this is the most advanced section. Or do you think this is the most advanced like part of the mob op is knowing when to break the rules? I think so. I mean, I think like a lot of skills you build in life on anything it's all about freeing up brain power to reach like a higher processing plane. So it's kind of like we talk about the, or you're brushing, you're trying to guide us when you're new, all your bandwidth is being used by the brushing. <laughs> so it's hard to have enough bandwidth to get the guidance. So in mob opping, if you know the fundamentals really well, so that you don't even have to think about it to you unconsciously know which spot you're in, what your role is, what you're supposed to do. Now you freed up all this bandwidth to start thinking about, well, wouldn't it be cooler if here, I did this other thing that like mixed up the mixed it up. So I think this is the hardest thing naturally because you have to be so comfortable with the fundamentals and feel elements that you have the bandwidth to do the flavor elements. Yeah. I really like the bandwidth analogy because it really is. Yeah. I think about bandwidth all the time. Like <laughs> I think that at the end of the day, we are like computers and we need bandwidth to do more advanced things. And like the more things we bring and I'm not going to, I'm going to get my computer analogies wrong. Like the more thing that goes into like internal memory or whatever, like the more you can start doing higher level stuff. Cause, cause I think about like when I'm learning to move. So like, I'm 
when working on a leg roll. I'm still terrible at it. But like before there was like 10 things I was trying to keep in my head and I can only keep two of them in my head. <laughs> and I was just constantly messing up. But now like seven of those things are locked down. And so I have three things and I can keep two of them in my head. And so like more often I hit the move right because I'm accidentally get all three. But like instead of trying to get two out of 10, I just need to get two out of three. And like also as you learn moves, you start to see other things. You're like now that my footwork is unconscious and my like wind positioning is unconscious, now I can start thinking about like how my fingers are angled or whatever. So like that's especially what you should think about if you're having trouble learning something. You're like, how am I ever going to get this? Like eventually the parts you're doing right will become unconscious and you can start working on the next part of the move that you might not even be aware of is there. Thanks. And that's about moves, but all mm -hmm. that applies to mob hopping too. Yep. I think about that all the time. It's like a skill tree in a video game where you like unlock the main uh, skill and then there's all these like attributes that you can like unlock that makes it 15% more powerful. Like at some point doing a brush is all you can think about. But then we get to the point where like you're thinking about what the receiver is going to get off of this brush and the brushes happen. So yeah. you're just aiming at that point. You're not thinking what your fingers are doing. What kind of reminds you is I think maybe the highest level of mob hopping is when not only have you developed your own flavor, you have a sense of what everyone else's flavor is too. Like <laughs> you can see the battlefield and you're like, oh, I, I think Jake and Ryan are going to do this. That maybe breaks the rules. And it's not just that like you're adding your own spice to the jam, but you are seeing what everyone else is adding and you're making decisions based on what they're doing in a way that's like more high level. Yeah, I like that. And so like, I'm trying to think about how to describe <laughs> it. Like there's this magic when you're mob offing where like I think about it when it's me, you and Jake, like the best friend jab. It's sort of like, it feels like I have not just my own body, but three bodies. And like we're all directing each other in this perfect symphony. <laughs> and like everyone's a conductor and everyone's a participant. And somehow it works perfectly. And it's just like, that's the magic of freestyle when it's really working like that. Yep. it's. Yeah, and that in the best friend jam, I know exactly what the baseline is, and so the slightest deviation is like well understood by the other two people, and we just go to our spots. What's also like almost funny when we do mess up and we look at each other, we almost like yell at each other, like it's like no, 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 I thought you were <laughs> yeah. gonna do this, and you're like no, I thought you were gonna do that. So it's like, but it's funny how it's like that scene in the like movie we talk yeah, about where like the two people are talking, they're like doing the eye movements, but like the yeah. audience can hear them talking in their head, but like they're not talking in the scene. It's exactly yeah. like that. Yeah. But it's always just funny how we're all like, like, I don't, I wonder if other people don't feel that way. They're just like totally in the moment of like, I'm just trying to do what's right in front of me. And I can't think about anything else. Whereas me and you were sort of like, Oh, like this person should be moving <laughs> yeah. here after the next three brushes. Like you can see a lot further ahead, the better you get at it. Like I usually know with the next three or four things, that should happen or gonna happen. And I, it's a branch, like there's optionality. It's not like I know that those four things are gonna happen, but it's sort of like you can see bigger and bigger patterns. Like another way to think about it, going on a classic rant of mine, but like chess players- I was just gonna bring up the chess thing too. <laughs> well, there's a couple of different aspects of it. So I don't, maybe I might even say the same thing you're gonna say, but like there's a couple of things that are interesting about chess players. One, like if you show chess players a chess board, like they can memorize it in a second. Whereas like someone like me, I couldn't do it. It'd be like trying to memorize oh, 20 different a, things. But like they see these big... I have a 
Well, okay. Well, two things. Okay. They see big patterns because they've seen everything so many different times that it's like a unit that their brain registers rather than a bunch of individual pieces. But they also see like like 20 to 40 to 50 moves ahead of like what everyone is supposed to be doing. So they see sort of like, you can think of the first thing as spatial patterns. Like they can see what's on the board way faster and way better than you can. But they also see temporal patterns of like how that spatial pattern should morph over time based on people making the logical decisions going forward. And that's how I think about freestyle after doing it for almost 15 years. Like I see these big patterns and I see them now, like where we're all standing, what we're supposed to do, but also temporally of like, here's where everyone is supposed to go and the kinds of things that they should be doing. And like, because it's a big unit, it doesn't take up a lot of brain power and it like gives me so much more freedom to figure out what to do. That was exactly what I was going to say, but like more chess specific, but I was going to add one detail to your thing about seeing a chess position and memorizing it right away. So yeah, I think this also happens in freestyle, but they did a test where they showed grandmasters just random. So they randomly put the pieces on the board with no rules versus a chess position that was they've never seen before. And they would vastly outperform the public on the chess positions, but they would be exactly the same performance on the randomly placed pieces. And I think, yeah. Yeah, let me explain that better. I remember the study. So like uh, some chess positions happen naturally, right? Because there's rules that all the pieces have. So like there's probably billions or trillions. I have no idea. But like there's a certain number of chess positions that can happen naturally in a real game. And then there's random positions that would never happen in a game. And what you're saying is truly randomized chess positions, grandmasters are no better than we are mm -hmm. at memorizing the board. But if it's something that happens naturally in freestyle, then grandmasters far outperform everybody. But actually it makes an interesting point, I think, in freestyle, which is if you put the chessboard of freestyle in an unnatural position, it's going to break the brains of even the I best players. I think that's so true. It's like, like yeah. that's the damage of being out <laughs> of position is that you take us from being grandmasters and you make us regular people. But I think that's a positive. So talking about flavoring the jam, like setting up a position in the jam that is unusual is a positive. I mean, no, is like you can flavor the jam that way and it's like a way to elevate it. It's kind of like throwing you the really steep vertical angle. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Did you have any others in flavors? I have like a couple quick addendums, but otherwise I don't really have anything to add. Uh, the only last thing I was, this is like short, but you can intentionally flavor the jam by setting goals. So like the common, the most common one is last catch. So like at the end of the jam, you catch, you call last catch and everyone like has a certain, uh, everyone knows what to do. Another one is the 10 in a row, which you like. So that can both Love 10 in a row. <laughs> elevate the jam and it like everyone knows. And like the learning, the learning jam. But you have to like call it out. And I was going to bring up one thing. I've been watching a lot of mountain bike videos and like tutorials. And the word they use mm -hmm. for practicing is sessioning. So it's when they go over the same jump over and over again, they call it sessioning. And I'm, I think I'm going to steal that for freestyle. So when I'm drilling, I'm going to call it sessioning. I do like sessioning. It sounds way cooler than practicing. Yeah. Maybe it's the key to get people to do more of it because it sounds cool. I'm sessioning. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for my quick yep. tips that I hand wrote on the sheets? So I might not be able to read them well. So a lot of these are kind of just 
we've talked about them in the non mob op context, but people seem to completely forget them once we start mob opping. And I want to bring them back. So first one, which I talk about a lot, is vary the combo length. So there's something <laughs> about mob opping where everyone just decides that every combo is supposed to be three and a half minutes long, and no one ever does a two move combo anymore. Now I do think it makes sense that mob op combos are a little bit longer because there's value in letting a combo go through everybody, for instance. And so that's just going to take longer to go through five people. But I think some of the best mob ops among the best players do have these interludes of really short combos. So for instance, it's really common in a two-person jam to have kind of a quick catch speed flow section, but that's pretty rare in a mob op. And I think it's too rare. It's like, don't be afraid to just have a little section where it's like, I'm going to throw you a downwind, not a lot of spin throw just for your catch. And let's do like three or four catches to mix it up. But in any case, I just think mob op combos go really long. So think about putting some short ones. Oh, in the ad. Oh. All right, now we're getting. Oh, go, I go, think go, there's go. more opportunities to do short combos than we realize. Like anytime something goes wrong, make it a short combo. But a lot of times we're like, no, let's scoop it out and then continue what we were going to do. But that was an opportunity to do a short combo naturally. Well, I also think going back to the is dropping okay. I think when things go wrong, your first instinct should be, how can I catch this? Like how, can, like, how can I end this combo now and get us to the next one? Because one, the catch kind of saves the combo if you hit it. And like we talked about before, if you drop it, it's not such a big deal. Like rather than let this, all the English idioms are kind of bad, but like stop beating the dead horse of this combo that's not going <laughs> very well. Try to end it and let's move on to the next one. So like catching is usually your way out of a bad situation or better to say attempting to catch it is your way out of the situation. And if you drop it, that's fine. But like better that than like you said, it is rebrush it and try to try to save it. So that actually leads to my next one. Try to keep it moving, but don't force it either. So like I see two kinds of mistakes and it's hard to know what the right one is. And it's about finding a balance. So one, like obviously you want to pass it faster rather than shorter. So like one touch mob upping is kind of our goal. We don't do it very much, but like keep it moving. But especially for newer players, like take the time you need to get it moving correctly. So it's just a tough balance. <laughs> I almost regret bringing this one up. It's so hard to describe, but like there's a lot of times I'm sitting in the jam and I'm like, oh, they're trying way too hard to make the set perfect. And they just brushed it six times. And I would have rather them sent it imperfectly. It's almost like the drop thing again. It's like, give me a bad brush set now rather than make me wait for you to brush it six times. Like find yeah. a balance, like try to keep it moving, but take do what you need to do to make it good or like find the balance between those. Would you say things. it's much easier to pass it to someone less skilled than you than for a less skilled person passing it to a more skilled person? Cause the expectation. I don't know if I'm answering that correctly, but I think if you are a less skilled player, you should not be that worried about how you get it. To I think the that's the right player. answer, like, but that's not what people do. Yeah. They're like, no, this person's a higher skill. So they expect a better set. And that leads to trouble. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, really it's the opposite. opposite. Like They don't need a better set. Just get it to them. Um, this fits within a couple of themes and it kind of relates to the indie point a little bit. But I say like, once you're alone, make it quick. <laughs> so like, and that really applies even if it is an indie. But a lot of times in a brush run, for a variety of different reasons, you will be in front of everybody and there's nobody behind you. And so there's no one to pass it to. So try to pick things up quickly and you can still do a sweet 
more or less indie combo as long as it's consecutive. But like, we don't do what I think a lot of people do is they start just brushing it and going on and on and on. It's like, no, no, no. Like no one else is there. You're now taking up everyone else's time. Just finish it. This is a great little short one. I wonder if you'll agree with me or not. Lower is better. So especially in the wind, given a choice, people have a lot more options. Let's say like below the belly button than above the belly button. So try to keep it at that level. Because I think a lot of times when mob ops are working well, everyone is, has, the disc is always like above or at everyone's head <laughs> and they have like no optionality. They can't really catch it very well up there unless it's just a scarecrow. They can't roll it, they can't kick it. You just totally limit people's options. So just keep it low. And there's a lot more ways to get the disc to go back up than there are to get the disc going down. In fact, I think like really only like super high skilled players can lower the disc, but a lot of people can raise it. It's like try to keep it low from the beginning. Do you agree, I with, agree that? with it? I've never thought of it that way, but it makes sense. Okay. Here's, this is my, so this is my favorite one. And it's another one that's also like kind of finding the balance. <laughs> so maybe it's not a very helpful one, but I, I wrote create optionality, but indicate your intention. So here's what I mean by that. Let's start with the easier part first. Indicate your intention. This means if there's ways to signal to everyone what you're going to do, that's helpful information for them to act on. So the easy example is a hoop. Like if we're in the best friend jam and I'm in the middle and Jake is in the setting position, if the disc is going towards Jake, before Jake even touches the disc, I will create my hoop. <laughs> and I'm telling Jake, here's where you should brush it. And I'm telling you, be ready to catch it. I'm also telling you I'm probably about to run into your lane, but I'm not going to touch the disc. So don't assume that I'm going to take it. So like that's an example of indicating your intention. But there's other ways too. Like I often, if I'm in the crosswind setting position, I either put my brush hands out or I put my roll hands out to say, hey, if you give it to me, this is what I'm going to do. And everyone else can adjust to that. So do you agree, I agree with that? With it a lot. That would be in the fundamental section because then you can break those rules to add flavor like a Portland set. Well, I'll give you an even more advanced using intentionality. Sometimes I demonstrate my intentionality because this is, I'm telling you, here's where I want you to set it, but I might not actually want to do the thing <laughs> that I'm indicating. So for instance, like it's hard to come up with an exact example, but Maybe like I make it seem like I want you to set me for a guide us. And like maybe I, you know, like if you're in the catcher position, you might put your left hand out to be like, hey, like set it over here. I'm going to catch it over here. But like I'm not going to catch a guide us. I'm going to do something else. But there's no way for me to communicate succinctly <laughs> like what I'm going to do. And you wouldn't know where to set it anyway. So I'm going to give you the information that you can act on that is helpful to me. And then I'm going to do it. So like a, an easier example would be like, you put your brush hands out to be like, hey, I'm going to brush this back to you, but I'm not going to brush it with my hands. I'm going to do a sole brush or a scarecrow brush. But like that doesn't matter to you. It's going back to our move mm -hmm. categories. Like what matters to you is I'm going to brush it here <laughs> and I need it in the same place no matter what the brush is. Um, okay, but create optionality. So what I mean by this, this is probably like too advanced and it pushes a little bit about indicate your intention. But there's lots of situations in the mob op where you can put yourself in a position that you have the maximum number of options to deal with what happens or do something cool. So for instance, 
like sometimes this is hard to describe. I put myself in a position so that if the disc is in front of me, I can do a brush roll kick, whatever I can keep it moving forward. But if the disc is behind me, I can do an inside out kick to get it back in front of me. So like I'm in a position where like, no matter what the other person does, I have options that are in front of me and I have options that are behind me. So like I stand in a position that gives me both of those options rather than just one. That makes sense. Um, is that just learn moves for all your different zones? Or how is it different from that? Well, it's more about like, it's more about like, sometimes you, it's almost goes to what I was mad at you about before in our last podcast of like, sometimes you're so sad, like I'm going to do a guidance here. So you put yourself in the perfect position to be able to execute your guidance. But like, let's say I could move a little bit and my guidance positioning gets 10% worse, but my positioning for every other catch is 90% better. It's like, it's worth me making that move because I'll still be able to guide us. But now I've opened up a bunch of other catches that I can do if the set isn't perfect. I see. It also kind of relates to my whole thing about like standing a little bit back that, if you're in yeah. the catching position. I was trying to think of another concrete like, example. It, like if you stand up front to where you're actually going to catch it, like on the one hand, that makes sense. It's more efficient. That's where you need to stand to execute the catch that you want to catch. And you're signaling to the setter, hey, I'm going to be right here. Set it here. But like, if there's anything wrong with the set, like, especially if it's too high and it's behind you, you don't have any options anymore. But if you hung back a little bit, maybe it'd be a little bit harder for you to hit the flumming guidance you wanted to hit. But now, like, if you have to, you can still hit a scarecrow to save it if the set was behind you. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think like you will see these. I think lots of players do, but especially really top players, it's like, okay, I'm here and I'll be able to hoop it or leg over it or brush it. Like I'm creating lots of opportunities and I'm not going to close doors until the last possible minute. Yeah. I like it as a fundamental because when you're trying to elevate the jam, you do the thing where you lift your leg up so the throw can go under it. You're like limiting your options, but you're just breaking the rules. Yeah. To okay. Wait, here's another example. I think maybe it's my best example. Cause I think it's the <laughs> point most clearly. So the example I gave of like, we're jamming with Jake and Jake is about to brush it and I'm going to pre make my hoop. I'm not going to pre run into your lane though. I'm just going to make my hooping arm so that you guys can both see them, but I'm leaving my options open so that I can see Jake's brush. And once I see Jake's brush, I can either do what I said I was going to do and run out there and hoop it. Or maybe it's an even better brush than normal. I can like do a double leg over <laughs> thing to you or like, like I stand back and I don't like, I don't stake out exactly what I'm going to do yet. I tell you what I'm going to do or what I'm planning on doing, but I leave open other options and I can then still react to what happens. I see. So you're pushing the commitment later. That's a good, I mean, that's a better way to put it. And that also fits the intentionality thing. Like I show my intention, but I don't limit my ability to deviate from that mm -hmm. intention. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. I think that's maybe all I wanted to add. I didn't really come up with rules like you did. Um, I guess the last thing, which I kind of already said is like, know your surroundings. So that kind of relates not only to the players, but also, like I said about like, how close are you to everybody else? Are you too close? Are you crunching up into people's lanes? But also just knowing where people are. Like if you're like, I think about this with me and you a lot, someone catches the disc or drops the disc. What are you and I doing? We're looking around. We're like seeing where everyone is 
and trying to figure out where we should put ourselves. Whereas I think a lot of players don't do that. They're just like looking forward, waiting for the disc <laughs> to come. But like at any given time, like you should be able to just put a blindfold on me and I should be able to be like, okay, like Ryan's like five feet to my right. Like Daniel's two feet behind me and three feet to the left. Like obviously I don't get the exact feet right, but like you should kind of know where they are. And you know, that's important because a lot of times when someone makes a mistake, they're like, oh, I didn't hear you back there. Or like, I didn't know that's where you were. And sometimes you can't avoid it. Like there's lots of reasons someone moves unexpectedly and you don't hear them and you have the disc and you can't really look like when you have an opportunity, you should always be looking around and like listening to figure out where people mm -hmm. are so you can know what to do. That's good. I like all these little tips. I just realized I didn't like include any of the ones that I think of when you like are reading out your list. Like the one is if you know the person can't see you, don't move because they're probably going to set it. Like there's a lot of times where I know someone's going to set it to me and I, there's probably a better place for me to be, but I'm not going to go there because then they won't know where I am. Now that's interesting. Cause I think that depends on the skill level. Cause there are times like, I think when it's a high level jam, my view is like, I'm going to set it where it's supposed to be and trust that they'll get there even if they're out of position. And maybe that's not the best thing to do. And I, it's almost like when I say like Joey will drop it on principle, like this is the right thing to do. I don't care. That's going to be a drop. Like there's sometimes they're like the right thing for me to do here is to set it to Ryan's catch at this spot. And like, if Ryan's not there, that's his fault. <laughs> <laughs> and now that's like more extreme than I mean it, but that's really hard to describe. It's a very nuanced thing, but it's sort of like, if you, if you can trust that people around you to be doing the right thing, like, I think this happens on a brush run sometimes, like sometimes like it get, it gets put to you in a way that like you're in a situation where you are, you can't really see the other people around you and you have to brush the disc before you're going to be able to get the information you need. And in that situation, I just say, set it where people are supposed to be. And if they're doing what they should be, they'll go be there. Yeah. I think that's a good baseline because I think it's good on both sides. Like if it, if they are there, then it completes and everyone's happy. But if you're not there, you have the funny moment, be like, you should have been there. <laughs> like it works in both yeah, cases. And it's also kind of the learning <laughs> thing. It's sort of like, just like we, we were debating whether you should just try to do the guide us. It's like, I'm telling you guys, you're supposed to be here. <laughs> and so this is, this is the jams learning moment, not my personal learning moment necessarily. It's like collective learning. We're going to do it the right way. Even if we're, it's going to cause us to yeah. make a mistake. We never talked about anticipating. I mean, I guess you talked about it a little bit, like, you know, what's going to happen into in the future as you get better, but anticipating is such a valuable thing, but it like, yeah, it didn't fall into my, <laughs> my points. Yeah. And you just get better I at mean, it. That's yeah. kind of what I was getting about where like, I like when it's group anticipation, like that's where it's really at the highest level. It's not just you anticipating what's supposed to happen, but everyone is kind of anticipating together and maybe what they're anticipating is shifting based on everyone's individual actions. I mean, really like that's, what's so cool about freestyle It's just like a symphony. It's just all these individual real time little decisions constantly changing and morphing people expectations. And we're all reacting to each other and reaching a state of flow. But there is something really beautiful about here's five people and we're doing like a weighted move sequence generation. And like everyone kind of knows what's going to happen, but based on new variables or new changes or everyone's little bits of flavor, it changes the outcome of the generator. And when you're doing it well and you know, like, Oh, okay. Like even before it happens, you can see what's 
unfolding and it's just cool to watch the story play yep. out. It's almost like a movie that you know basically what the structure of the movie is going to be, but you still really like watching it. Okay. I have a forward facing question. Do you think when everything okay. works so well at the highest level, it gets boring? And like, what do you do then? I mean, that's where we talked a little bit that earlier about sometimes we're both doing the right thing over and over again, our two person jam and we get really bored. I do think, yes, I think that's where you kind of have to add flavor. And that's also where we've talked about this before in other contexts. I think people have to push their own boundaries to try to make it exciting again. This is how, like I've talked about this in the context of Duke where like a lot of the time I'm just jamming to keep everybody in the mix one way or another because we're not that good. But every now and then I'm like, okay, I need to go for a 10 move because people are getting bored and it doesn't even matter if I catch it or drop it. This is going to be what's going to make it exciting. And I think there's some analog to that and the mob op of like, okay, like, yes, like the, the brush is the right answer 90% of the time when we're jamming, but like we're bored now. <laughs> it's me and you. So like new rule, every brush has to be at least as hard as a triple fake brush. And maybe we'll start dropping it more, but the excitement level will go up and then we can kind of regroup as we follow. But I guess my short answer is flavor helps fix that. Like you said, breaking the rules every now and then. And then everyone individually pushing themselves outside of their comfort zones helps break that. But it's so rare that a high level jam happens that I don't get bored that much. I feel like me and you get bored the most because like we play mm -hmm. a lot together where it gets boring because we're just doing what we always <laughs> do and we have to like push ourselves not to. Yeah. I don't know if I have it in me to, to whatever, be uncomfortable in the jam anymore. Actually, maybe, yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's something about, like I've been reading a little bit about, I don't know if this is the exact phrasing they use, but it's sort of like the optimal level of arousal, which is about not being too bored, not being too stressed. And like anything in your life, is better if you find that optimal level of arousal. So like at work, if you don't have a challenging enough task, you're really bored. If the task is too challenging, you're really stressed. In both of those situations, you're not that happy. Like when people are at their happiness and when they reach a flow state, it's when their skills match the challenge. So I think when we get bored, like a mob up gets boring, even though it's you know objectively good, it's because we're literally bored in the sense that we have not set a challenge for ourselves that's equal to our skill, which means we need to up the challenge by pushing outside of our boundary. Yeah. That's why last catch is my favorite part of the jam. It was also how kind of what we said about, yes, the better, correct, highest value option is option A, but I'm going to do option <laughs> D and like probably I'm going to drop it. And you're going to look at me like, why did you do that? It's because we've already done A 100 times and B 50 times and C 25 times. So let's do, let's do D. Not so good. But okay, one other thought about this, and I know this is going to be like our longest podcast, but it's mob upping, whatever, is, you know, I was a musician for a long time and I was a jazz musician for a long time. And in jazz has a lot of freestyle elements because, you know, in a lot of other contexts, like if you're a rock band, like you literally play the same song over and over and over again. But like in jazz, you do have this improvisation element, just like in freestyle, where you're trying to come up with new things. But even in that context, like everyone talks about how it's hard to keep it fresh and spontaneous and not be like, I played this sequence of 25 <laughs> notes a thousand times before. It's like that happens in music, but 
the only thing I wanted to say is like, there's something fine about doing the same things over and over again too. So some of it is just sort of setting your expectation that it's like, okay, it's okay that maybe we've done this combo 25 times before, but you know, the Beatles sang yesterday more than 25 times and it was fine. <laughs> so it's tough. Like I think actually freestyle has this great benefit that I think there's very few things that I've done 25 times. I think almost I'm like shocked that I think, I don't know, like what percentage of combos I'm not going to use you as an example because I think you're a bad <laughs> example, but like take the way I play, like what percentage of my combos are unique? Like I've never done mm, that before. Well, I like this question. Like what? Okay. So you did a combo. What's the chance of it matching something you did in your past? That's what we do it that way. Yeah. I would say 12%. Really? I actually, my personal feeling and I could be way off is it's closer to like 50%. And I got, and it doesn't, to be clear, like this sounds like, I mean, like, look how amazing I am. I do unique combos, but it's not like unique in some especially interesting way. It's more just like, like there's so many moves. It's like yeah, chess moves, of the right? chess like, there's only position. There's only so <laughs> many pieces and yet there's like billions of combinations. So, but I also think this would be like some kind of weird yeah. barbell curve where like, there's probably like a bunch of things that I've done hundreds of times like five, six move combos that I've done a hundred times each. And then, you know, there's a spectrum, but then I think there's a huge I was just gonna say tail, the tail is longer than like, you think. Yeah. So I personally feel like a ton of the time I'm freestyling, like I've never done that before. Even if it's not like so cool, I've never done that before. It's like, oh, that was like slightly a little bit different than something that I've done before because, you know, there's so many moves and so many ways you can put them together. Like, and again, only a tiny thing has to be different for it to be unique. It's sort of like, maybe I've done the same five moves thousands of times, but you know, how many different ways can you put those five moves together is huge. I mean, I'm really rambling here, but like music, there's only 12 notes or whatever. I should know that. Like I used to play music, but I don't remember. How many different ways have we put those together? <laughs> so many different ways. So it's in general, I'm shocked at how unique combinations are. And we're lucky that our sport has that uniqueness because I feel like when I was a musician, I felt much more constrained of like, how do I keep it fresh? Like, how do I keep feeling like I'm doing something that I haven't done before? That felt a lot harder to do in music than it does in freestyle because there's so many more bass moves in freestyle than even in music. But even in freestyle, there are definitely times where it's like, I mean, Dan and I, we've talked this before, Dan and I always look at each other at some point in jam and we're like, no, Adam, <laughs> like, what else is there? Yeah. I'd be a good survey to ask people like what percentage of moves they think. I think it's a classic, like you can't really trust what your own judgment is. Yeah, it's a probability like, question. I say why, 50%. Yeah. Like if you told me it was 90%, well, I honestly, if you told me it was 1% or 99%, I would believe you. <laughs> like it, neither one would shock me. Anyways. Okay. Anything else? We went pretty long. Nothing huh? else for me. Okay. I thought that, I thought you did a great <laughs> job though. I really appreciate you putting that list together. I thought it was pretty helpful and, pretty clear cool well that's mob hopping i'm sure it'll come up other times in other ways and uh if anyone has any questions or feedback let us know and we're we're happy to talk about it tell us everything we got wrong and with that thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week <laughs>